I would bring back waterboarding, and I'd bring back a hell of a lot worse than waterboarding. Mr. Trump, thank you. Yes, Mr. Trump, thank you. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one reason. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Nope. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM people-powered radio in L.A. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on KSO. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, in Palinville, New York, on WLPP, on Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, KODX in Seattle, Washington, KFOI in Red Bluff and Redding, California, KKRN in Round Mountain, California, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker. All-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Bradblog, speaking of which, bradblog.com's Ernie Canning will be joining us momentarily to discuss... Uh, well, to discuss two things, uh, Donald Trump's comments once again about voter fraud on Thursday night in... West Virginia, which, frankly, I hate even discussing because it's just so idiotic. Uh, but, you know, he's now he's the president of the United States, if you haven't heard. So I guess I have to respond every now and again to this idiocy. Yeah, I mean, this this idiocy, these lies, these are outright lies that he's been told about over and over and over again are lies. They have to be debunked every single time because, you know, there's somebody somewhere who does not yet know that Donald Trump lies. Well, that is our producer, Desi Doyen calling the president of the United States a liar. Yes, I, I am. I can't believe you would do such a thing. <laughs> anyway, we'll talk to Ernie about that. And uh, frankly, far more disturbingly, Donald Trump's nomination of alleged torture overseer and destroyer of torture evidence, Gina Haspel, uh, to head the Central Intelligence Agency. Now, Ernie has a very personal connection to all of this. Uh, as his own father was waterboarded by the Japanese during World War II and testified against them during war crimes trials after the war. So uh, so that's ahead. You can look forward to torture coming up in a bit. <laughs> uh, but let me jump right in here uh, with something maybe a bit lighter. I don't know. This is a, a comment from longtime listener Dale. As you know, Dale out yeah. of Ohio, hey, Dale. Um, a comment uh, via bradblog.com in response to our story on um, on Thursday on the record number of women now running for Congress this year, writes Dale. 
Uh, quote, plenty of green women running, too. Why just mention Dems and Repubs? Fear of third parties? <laughs> Lincoln was third party. Well, uh, fair point, Dale. I was uh, working on that story. I was working from AP's numbers, uh, their research on this, and they had only referenced the number of Democrats and Republicans running. I haven't looked yet uh, looked up yet how many female Green Party or Libertarian Party or any other party or independent candidates had uh, qualified so far as candidates this year. Uh, but I'll take Dale's word for it that there are also uh, female Green Party candidates running, etc. Uh, no slight intended, Dale. We support democracy here. We're not one of those, oh, if only Ralph Nader hadn't run, if only Jill Stein hadn't run or whoever. We're not one of those people. That said... As you hopefully know, the entire U.S. House will be up for grabs this November, and only a third of the U.S. Senate will be on the ballot this year. But of the Senate seats up for grabs in November, 26 of them are currently held by Democrats and eight by Republicans. So Democrats have a lot of seats they need to defend. And of those 26 Democratic seats that are up for election, six of them are in states where Donald Trump's popularity remains uh, pretty high. That would include Florida, Indiana, Missouri, Montana, North Dakota and West Virginia. Those are the six states that uh, Republicans are looking at very closely in hopes of growing their currently slim 51, 49 uh, margin in the U.S. Senate. So uh, with that in mind, I've been trying to get to this story out of Montana now for a couple of weeks, and we've got a few new elements to it. But let me start here. Um, after serving more than three decades in the uh, in Congress, U.S. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky counts blocking the nomination of President Obama's Supreme Court pick Merrick Garland as the, quote, most consequential decision that he's made in his, quote, entire public career. That, according to an interview with Kentucky Today earlier uh, earlier in the week, the, uh, the decision, he says, the decision I made not to fill the Supreme Court vacancy when Justice Scalia died was the most consequential decision I've made in my public career, entire public career. He said, the things that will last the longest time, those are my top priorities. He is, of course, correct. Uh, we will be forced to deal with that stolen U.S. Supreme Court that the Republicans stole for a generation or more, thanks to the Republican majority uh, in the U.S. Senate. Uh, and uh, having stolen that seat, essentially, and the Democrats' inability to force a vote for more than a year on Obama's nominee to the Supreme Court, McConnell blocked Garland's nomination, you'll remember, by refusing to grant a committee hearing for the, nom uh, for the Obama nominee after Scalia had died in February of 2016. That uh, led eventually to the appointment of Neil Gorsuch, the uh, far right wing Donald Trump nominee and Republicans maintaining the far right wing majority ideologically uh, on the on the high court. McConnell's Senate also confirmed 
12 federal court uh, federal circuit judges in uh, in the first year of Trump's presidency. Those judges, as McConnell notes, are all relatively young, so they will serve on the federal bench for decades in their lifetime positions, making this year's midterm elections even more important, as if they weren't important enough, uh, as you have scores of federal bench vacancies still left open from the Obama administration, thanks to years of Republicans slow-walking those nominations, which they no longer need to, since we've now done away with the filibuster on federal judges and Supreme Court nominees. And then there's the talk of late that Justice Anthony Kennedy may be soon retiring from the Supreme Court, making this year's elections even more important since any new nominee to the uh, Supreme Court would have to be confirmed in the Senate. And uh, so this all, of course, presumes that uh, Kennedy can hang on long enough until November, until Democrats can possibly, maybe, who knows, gain back a majority in the U.S. Senate. Well, McConnell noted in his interview with Kentucky Today that uh, I'm hoping we can hold the Senate, he said. And the principal reason for that is even if we were to lose the U.S. House, as many Democrats are hopeful that the Republicans will. Uh, Even if we were to lose the House and be stymied legislatively, we could still approve appointments, which is a huge part of what we do. Except when a Democratic president is in power. Uh, it's not as important when a Democratic president well, of course. Well, to then, actually appoint anybody. No, uh, then it's important to hold the majority so that they can keep people from being appointed. Exactly. But all of this uh, brings us to Montana. Now, this is a story uh, that I was hoping, I was trying to get to, um, as I said, a couple of weeks ago. There's a, new, a couple of new elements, but let's start a couple of weeks ago when AP reported that a man who registered as a Green Party candidate for Montana's U.S. Senate race was on the state Republican Party's payroll and heads a newly formed anti-tax group that, according to a review of election documents uh, by AP back in mid-March. So he registered to become a Green Party candidate despite being on the state Republicans payroll. Timothy Adams filed as a challenger. Um, in mid-March against Democratic Senator John Tester, who faces a tough re-election campaign in a race where a Green Party candidate could siphon off votes from the Democrat. The Green Party also happened to qualify on that same day in mid-March in Montana. They happened to qualify uh, for the ballot themselves as a party. That was the state's deadline uh, for candidates to file for office. Adams... Timothy Adams was one of six people to file uh, as a Green Party candidate for various races on the ballot this fall. A total of seven people are looking to unseat Tester now in the race for U.S. Senate in Montana, including four Republicans vying for their party's nomination and uh, now two Green Party candidates. Adams is one of them. His name and phone number was found to be the same as the treasurer of Montanans Against Higher Taxes, which is a group formed to oppose a legislative referendum on the ballot this fall for a 10-year property tax extension to help fund the state's university system. But this guy, Timothy Adams, a supposedly Green Party candidate, uh, is also on this group fighting against uh, extending 
the ten-year property tax uh, tax in uh, in Montana for state university systems. Uh, the the uh, same Bozeman address for this guy Adams was listed. Uh, had uh, under was an, uh, named in federal election commission documents showing that he was paid by the Montana Republican State Central Committee from October of 2013 until May of 2015. His current role with the party was not clear. I might suggest his current role is dirty trickster. Spoiler. MSNBC's Steve Bennon observed at the time when this came out a few weeks ago, he said, I suppose it's possible that this guy who was paid by the Montana Republican State Central Committee as recently as 2015 underwent a dramatic reevaluation of his political beliefs and somehow went from the far right to the far left quite quickly. But it seems more likely that the GOP is engaged in some unfortunate electoral mischief. Adams also filed to run as a libertarian candidate in a state house race back in 2012. But he later withdrew from that one. So uh, he went from a far right libertarian Republican to now a Green Party, even though apparently he is still uh, listed as uh, part of this Montanans against higher taxes. So that's what we knew a couple of weeks ago. We now know more. And Democrats in Montana are now fighting to keep the Montana Green Party entirely from fielding a candidate in this race against Democratic Senator John Tester. Tester is running for his third term this year. He's one of the most vulnerable Democrats up for reelection. Montana favored Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton by a 21 point margin in 2016. And Tester himself won both of his previous elections with less than 50 percent of the vote. While he now may face multiple challengers on the ballot this fall, which creates a chance for a Green Party candidate to siphon votes off from the left. Now, Des, you use the word uh, spoiler there, and I, and I kind of don't like that word because oh, it, it suggests that, you know, uh, oh, Jill Stein had no right to run for the presidency. Of course, she had all the right in the world, or Ralph Nader. Yes, they may prove to be spoilers, but you know what? That's democracy. At least that's the democracy that we currently have in the United States. And you know what? I, I completely and totally 1000 percent agree with you. That is their right to do. However, this guy, mm -hmm. you know, presuming that he isn't actually going through some ideologically fluid phase in his political right. ideals, I think that he's actually intending to be a literal spoiler, therefore acting as a green. Acting as a green and republic, acting as a republic. <laughs> yeah, acting, acting as a green to siphon off votes from the Democrat. Is that right. where you're getting? Yeah, at? yeah. Mostly. I know it is confusing, isn't it? Uh, and it's purposely so. Uh, and we have more evidence that that is exactly what this guy was tr is trying to do. Uh, at least according to the Democrats here, um, they say that the Green Party earned access to Montana's ballot only after turning in thousands of signatures just before the critical deadline here. And Democrats are now crying foul. They want the party Green Party booted from the ballot because they suspect that a GOP firm 
was behind the petition drive to get the party on the ballot at all. They have now filed a complaint with the Montana Commissioner of Political Practices alleging that a Nevada-based GOP firm from Nevada, a Republican firm, has violated state law by failing to report its spending on behalf of the Green Party. The Montana Democratic Party says at least two of the signature gatherers identified themselves in social media postings as employees of this company named Advanced Micro Targeting, a political consulting firm in Nevada, which usually works for Republicans. Six of the 13 signature gatherers for the Green Party effort live in states other than Montana, which Democrats say is also a violation of the law. Nancy Keenan, the executive director of the Montana Democratic Party, said, quote, the evidence suggests that the Republican linked Nevada firm advanced micro targeting, which has a history of shoddy and unethical petition gathering practices, was behind this effort. Advanced micro targeting has previously worked for Senators Todd Young, Republican of Indiana, Senator Pat Roberts, Republican of Kansas, uh, Congressman Mike Simpson. Republican of Idaho and former Senator Thad Cochran, Republican of Mississippi. So a lot of evidence that this is a, yes, a Republican scheme. Tester will face the winner of the contested GOP primary. That'll be held on June 5, where I think there's four different uh, people running. Uh, He will also face a libertarian opponent. And unless the party is knocked off the ballot, He'll face the winner of a two-person Green Party primary that some Democrats fear will pull votes from Tester and cost him the seat. Republicans, however, according to Reed Wilson over at the Hill, see a case of just desserts. Now, uh, Tester, they say, has benefited from third-party candidates pulling votes away from his GOP rivals In past elections, in both of Tester's previous races, the libertarian candidate has won a higher percentage of the vote than the margin by which Tester won. So in those cases, it was the uh, potentially it was the libertarian who turned out to be that so-called spoiler. Well, again, I'm only saying the guy is a spoiler because I think he is a Republican in green clothing. I don't think he actually intends to run and Act as a green in office. That's a dirty trick spoiler versus somebody who is genuinely trying to front their ideological uh, concepts in politics. Fair enough. I don't disagree with you. That's my only thing. You're, You're right. That said, in 2012, allies of John Tester went so far as to spend money to bolster the libertarian candidate who was running in those races. That year, uh, in 2012, a super PAC that was funded by labor and environmental groups who were backing Tester, they spent a half a million dollars on a television ad campaign calling the libertarian candidate Dan Cox, quote, the real conservative. Cox ended up taking almost 32,000 votes that year, And Tester had beaten his uh, Republican opponent by a margin of 18,000 votes. So is that another case of being a spoiler? Uh, And where you had the... uh, Not by my definition. The Democrats. (laughs) Well, that's because, you know, you're a hypocrite. (laughs) 
Uh, Eric Iverson, the longtime Montana Republican strategist who ran the uh, Republican campaign against Tester back in 2012, um, said that uh, for sure the Republican Party here is all too willing to help out the Green Party in, in any way that they can, much like Tester did for the Libertarian. See the tangled webs we weave? Adding to the mystery is that one of those uh, Green Party candidates, the Hill Notes, Timothy Adams, used to be on the payroll of the state Republican Party. Adams wrote in a letter to Green Party members posted on the state party's website, quote, I have supported efforts to allow more choice and less corporate influence in health care through the Republican Party. This is his way of bolstering himself as a as a real life green. Uh, okay, you can buy that or not. Uh, in any event, Adams will uh, face gallery owner Steve Kelly in the Green Party primary in Montana. In a statement, a state uh, state Green Party spokesman spokeswoman, I'm sorry, Danielle Breck said that her party had no idea if any outside groups were collecting signatures on its behalf. She said in a statement, we are unaware of any paid petitioning efforts taking place on our behalf. We are a grassroots movement that, upon initiating our petition efforts uh, more than a year ago, made a public appeal to our supporters asking for assistance gathering signatures. While some states have robust Green Party operations, uh, the Hill notes Montana is not one of them. They were formed after Ralph Nader's presidential run in 2000, but the Green Party has fielded just one candidate in a gubernatorial or Senate election ever since. Republican strategist Iverson said it would not be surprising if some of the signatures gathered on behalf of the Green Party came from Republican voters. He said, I don't think any Republican in the state of Montana in any way, shape, or form is saying that this isn't a good thing for the GOP because it definitely is. Asked whether Tester's campaign was worried that the Green Party nominee would siphon votes away from the incumbent, Tester campaign spokesman Chris Meager said in an email, quote, no, we're not worried about it. But that has not stopped the state Democratic Party from seeking to kick the Greens entirely off the ballot. All right. Uh, speaking of elections and the importance of who now controls the U.S. Senate now that the filibuster has been done away with on presidential appointees. The Senate comes back into session this coming week with their slim 51-49 majority and a number of new Donald Trump nominees to top cabinet and executive agency posts will soon be on the agenda. Once again, one of those nominees is said to have played a key role in one of the darkest chapters in modern American history. Ernest A. Kenning joins us next to discuss it. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. 
We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. In 1983, Ronald Reagan, in a letter to the U.S. Senate, wrote that the United States participated actively and effectively in the negotiation of the International Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman, or Degrading Treatment or Punishment. The 40th president wrote that the treaty marks, quote, a significant step in the development during this century of international measures against torture and that ratification of the convention by the U.S. will clearly express United States opposition to torture, which he described as an abhorrent practice, unfortunately still prevalent in the world today. He noted that the core provisions of the convention establish a regime for international cooperation in the criminal prosecution of torturers and that, quote, each state party to the treaty is required either to prosecute torturers who are found in its territory or to extradite them to other countries for prosecution. President Reagan was writing to the U.S. Senate at the time to encourage them to ratify the treaty, which was unequivocal in its prohibition on torture in all circumstances. Article 2 of that convention lays out quite clearly that, quote, the convention bars torture for all purposes, no exceptional circumstances whatsoever, whether a state of war or a threat of war, international, uh, internal political instability or any other public emergency may be invoked as a justification of torture. And it goes on to add that an order from a superior officer or a public authority may not be invoked as a justification of torture. The convention would be eventually ratified by the U.S. Senate during the administration of President George H.W. Bush and served our nation and the world well for many years, at least until after 9-11, when the George W. Bush administration instituted a regime of torture that strictly violated the international treaties, specifically barring it. When Barack Obama then came to office, he, in theory, ended the U.S. torture re regime, I'm happy to say, but he failed to bring accountability as required by our ratified conventions on torture to the perpetrators of those crimes carried out by the George W. Bush administration. Obama said he was choosing to look forward rather than back. That, of course, has left the Bush-era torturers free to continue on as usual and even become a part of the Donald Trump administration all these years later. Donald Trump's current deputy CIA director, Gina Haspel, oversaw a secret U.S. prison in Thailand in 2002 where torture was carried out against prisoners, including the waterboarding of terror suspect Abu Zubaydah, 
some 83 times before Haspel took over command of that prison. And of another suspect, Abda al-Rahim al-Nashiri, who was reportedly waterboarded at least three times while Haspel served as chief of the Black Site prison. She also reportedly later signed off on the destruction by industrial shredder of more than 100 videotapes that had documented those acts of torture, destroying that crucial evidence of U.S. war crimes for all time. Trump has now nominated Haspel to become the new director of the CIA, as his current director, Mike Pompeo, has been tapped to become the new secretary of state. Haspel's appointment opens up a number of troubling concerns, particularly given Donald Trump's stated position on torture during the 2016 campaign. I would bring back waterboarding, and I'd bring back a hell of a lot worse than waterboarding. Mr. Trump, thank you. Haspel's nomination must still be confirmed by the U.S. Senate, which will return to session this coming week. And this past Wednesday, Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats told reporters that he will try, he will try to declassify as much information as possible about Gina Haspel and her involvement in the CIA's Bush era U.S. torture program. Coates told reporters, according to Politico, uh, quote, we want to declassify as much as possible without jeopardizing someone's what we call sources and methods. Every effort, he said, will be made to explain fully what her role was. Given Haspel's background, some senators have demanded that the CIA release information on Haspel's role in the torture program. Senator Rand Paul, Republican of Kentucky, has already come out against her nomination, even as Coates defended Haspel to reporters by telling them that, Gina, quote, Gina plans to be totally transparent in regards to this issue. And a lot of that has been mischaracterized, he said. What is being alleged is simply not true. Well, true or not, none of this sits very well with many opponents of torture, including longtime Bradblog.com contributor Ernest A. Canning, who has a very personal and painful connection to all of this. His own father, James R. Canning, was tortured by waterboarding and more by the Japanese during World War II, and uh, James Canning testified against his torturers as part of war crimes trials held by the U.S. and its allies after the war finally ended. Uh, Ernie Canning wrote about that disturbing chapter in world history at the Brad blog when the use of torture first came to light during the Bush administration. And once again this past week, in the wake of Haspel's disturbing nomination, he joins us now to discuss it. Ernie Canning is a retired attorney, author, Vietnam veteran, and during the 2016 presidential campaign, he served as a senior advisor to Veterans for Bernie. He's also been a long-toiling Brad Blog legal analyst for many years now. Mr. Canning, welcome back to the Bradcast, sir. Hi, Brad. How are you? I am okay. Uh, this topic is, <laughs> is never fun uh, to cover, uh, as you know. And actually, before we get into the, uh, the dark matter of, uh, of torture and Haspel's nomination here... Uh, let me just lighten things up a little bit, if I if I could, if you don't mind, Ernie. I want to get your thoughts on another matter that you have written about for many years here at the Brad Blog, specifically 
Oh boy, the GOP's long voter fraud scam, which Donald Trump is still all in on, claiming with zero evidence that uh, millions of illegal votes were cast against him for Hillary Clinton, and uh, that that's the only reason he lost the popular national vote by some three million votes. He was speaking at a tax reform roundtable in West Virginia on Thursday. He didn't speak much about tax reform, but he did say this. In many places... Like California, the same person votes many times. You probably heard about that. They always like to say, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. Not a conspiracy theory, folks. Millions and millions of people. And it's very hard because the state guards their records. They don't want to see it. <laughs> All right, Ernie Canning, you're, you're, uh, you're in California. One of those, perhaps one of those millions and millions of people who voted many, many times. Uh, your response to the President of the United States, sir? Well, if it was if it was limited to him, I think I, I I have a little trouble controlling my laughter. You know, this last election, just to get the feel for it, I, I volunteered to be a, a poll worker. Mm -hmm. There is just no way uh, that somebody could vote more than once. I mean, you sign in, and uh, you'd know immediately that they that they weren't in. It's a risk of a felony prosecution. But in reality, and what really is disturbing, this is for for now. Uh, you know, almost the last 20 years they've been perpetrating this fraud. And, uh, and when I say fraud, the fraud is the people making the allegation, mm -hmm. not not voter fraud, because in-person voter fraud is about as scarce as hen's teeth. Uh, there was a study done by uh, Loyola law professor Justin Levitt that was released in 2014, and in the preceding uh, 14 years uh, of an in-depth study in the, uh, out of a a billion votes cast, uh, Levitt found only 31 incidents that may have involved it in-person voter fraud. So it just doesn't happen. The other thing they've been floating around uh, various times is they'll claim there's non-citizen voting and it's, you know, that, that, that all these illegals are voting. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then they'll claim that uh, uh, the dead people are voting. Yeah. And every time you get these people into court, they can't come up with anything. If you recall... Uh, you and I had covered uh, uh, the Pennsylvania photo ID law that the, that the court struck down then, and the Pennsylvania Republicans who, who, who passed that photo ID law saying it was necessary to prevent in-person voter fraud, they ended up stipulating that they were not aware of a single incident of in-person voter fraud occurring at any time during the entire yeah. history of Pennsylvania, which dates back to the Revolution. So, yeah, you know, it just doesn't happen. I know, and, and, and I, I, I got to tell you, when I when I heard uh, Trump once again reiterate this nonsense, this after he's you know disbanded his own voter fraud committee that was headed up by Chris Kobach because uh, they were sued left and right, and they found absolutely no evidence of nothing. But you know, when I was thinking about it, I was like, well, God, uh, the president of the United States has apparently knows about all of this millions and millions of illegal votes happening out here in California, and yet his own department. Department of Justice has yet to make a single arrest for any of it. Why is Donald Trump withholding all of that evidence that he he must have about well, this? Well, in, in the case of Kobach, as you know, that uh, he was put to the test uh, yep. recently in a, a trial in a case called Fish v. v. Kobach, and the, Dale Ho, which the ACLU attorney, mm -hmm. just ripped his case and the uh, and his so-called experts' case uh, apart and. Uh, 
uh, it turned out that their evidence for uh, non-citizen voting was basically racial profiling, and one of the, the names he put in front of them that he said would trigger, uh, this expert said would trigger the belief that uh, he was an, uh, a possible non-citizen, turned out to be the name of one of the judges at the court there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and and, one of the, and the, the judge in the case, who was a George W. Bush appointee, was just absolutely brutal against Kobach throughout the trial. She has yet to come out with her... Uh, with her ruling in the case, I don't suspect it's going to work out well for Kobach uh, in Kansas, the Secretary of State there, who's now running for governor. Uh, One quick thing, Brad, yeah, if, yeah. if I could on that. Yeah. The day after the trial ended, they had a hearing on whether or not uh, Kobach should be held in contempt. So I'm anticipating there will be two rulings coming down, one of mm. which is whether or not uh, is you know I anticipate that they'll permanently enjoin uh, his violation of the uh, National Voter Registration Act. But the other thing is there's a very good chance that he's going to be held in contempt of court. Well, that's okay. Uh, Donald Trump will just pardon him for that like he did Joe Arpaio. So, uh, Ernie, we have put it off long enough. Uh, Let's talk. Let's get back to torture here. Your dad... uh, very troubling story that you tell in at uh, bradblog.com in Torture, A Crime Then and Now. You, you write about what happened to your father during World War II while he was imprisoned by the Japanese Kempitai. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, yeah, Kempitai. They're Kempitai. basically the, the, the Japanese uh, mm-hmm. Imperial Japan's uh, form of the, of the Gestapo. This was at the infamous Bridge House. Uh, it's documented by transcripts from the war crimes trials in, uh, in 1948. Can you describe very quickly what, what happened to your father and his fellow prisoners there at the Bridge House, the, the, the conditions they were living under, and yes, the waterboarding that was used against him? Well, it, yeah, it, it, the conditions were horrific. Uh, he was kept in a I think a 10-foot by 12-foot cell with anywhere from seven to nine other prisoners at any time. Um, you know, no uh, wearing. He was there for three months and wearing the same clothes. At at one point, he ended up uh, uh, getting an infection. He couldn't even uh, uh, use his hands, and a fellow prisoner helped feed him. Uh, but the the worst thing that happened to him, and he'll and he'll tell you that, and this idea that waterboarding is not torture, it's probably the most brutal form of torture you can inflict on somebody. Um, they had held him down. They they uh, they had uh, one guy sitting on his stomach, another on his chest, and they put him on these uh, uh, wooden forms, and and then they start pouring you know pouring water into his mouth and nose and. Uh, it, he described it to me, it's not in the transcript, as exquisitely painful mm-hmm. and, and, and frightening because, you know, the water runs up your mouth and knows your natural inclination is to breathe. And he lost consciousness, I think, something like uh, uh, nine times in the span of six hours. And by the time uh, uh, they got done with that, he would sign anything they put in front of him. And, and in this case, they, you know, they talk about torture, uh, you know, being ineffective. It, uh, he uh, he signed a confession that he was a British agent, even though he wasn't, and even though he thought he was signing his uh, his own death warrant. And, that, and that's the whole point of torture. You can get people to say anything they think you want to hear, whether or not they have any knowledge at all. So it's even if it was lawful, and I think you covered, you know, the, the, the point you made about uh, what President Reagan said is basically what the law is, and every one of these people should have been been prosecuted. What happened back then 
uh, is the Japanese general that was in charge of the Kempitai in Shanghai and in charge of Bridge House did not personally take part in my father's torture or any of the others, but he was sentenced to a life sentence under a principle called command responsibility. He had command responsibility over the people that were carrying out torture in, in an agency that he was responsible for. And if you use that same principle of command responsibility, which remains viable under international law today, mm-hmm. Gina Haspel it, it should be in prison. She should not be coming before the, uh, the uh, Senate to be confirmed as, as a next, CIA's next director. And I think it's a slap in the face of everybody who has ever uh, undergone such horrific treatment that Donald Trump would, uh, would nominate her. But like you said, we're not surprised. I mean, uh, 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 what, what bothers me, I was, I was, when I originally wrote on this, if you recall, mm-hmm. uh, I, had, I had been troubled by the sophistries applied by the Obama administration because it just damages the rule of law when you don't apply international law to your own people who carry out torture. The, those sophistries and, being we're, we're interested in looking forward, not back, and so we're not going to hold these people accountable under yeah, well, any how of these can, conventions. How can the law ever be applied if you never, in any case, if you're somebody's being tried for murder, well, we don't want to look back. He committed that murder yesterday. Right. You know, <laughs> we're looking forward. Right. So, I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous to, to, to come up with that principle. You also make the case uh, in your piece at Brad Blog that uh, torture carried out by the U.S., and, and we should say, by the way, that uh, what we're talking about with Gene Haspel, I said it before, but it's still alleged at the moment. We don't have all of the details of everything that she was uh, responsible for, everything that happened while she was in charge of that uh, prison in Thailand in 2002. So this is still alleged. Uh, hopefully it comes out during the uh, Senate confirmation hearings. But you make the case in your piece that at Brad blog that uh, the, the torture carried out by the U.S. after 9-11 by the CIA was as bad or worse as what Japan did during World War II and to your father. Well, in fact, it, it was much worse and far more scientific. Uh, if you remember, I did a five-part series on torture, and uh, uh, what happened is that uh, the CIA uh, had for a number of years, more than a decade, uh, of 1950 to 1962, at a cost of a billion dollars a year, conducted extensive studies on how to make torture uh, most effective, and mm-hmm. it's, it's all laid out in a 1963 Kubark uh, torture manual where uh, you combine uh, prolonged isolation, prolonged sleep and sensory deprivation. Uh, if you look at, for example, Abu Zubaydah, uh, he, was, he was kept in, uh, between the 83 times he was waterboarded, he was kept inside a coffin-like box. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there, there was a Senate torture report that uh, documented what was being done at these places that was released in, in 2014. And it, uh, they only released the, the summary, not that all the details, but mm-hmm. uh, the sleep deprivation involved keeping detainees awake for up to 180 hours, usually standing or in stress position. At times, their hands were shackled above their heads. At least five detainees obtained, experienced disturbing hallucinations during prolonged sleep deprivation, and in at least two of those cases, the CIA nonetheless continued the sleep deprivation. So my father at least, you know, he was with other prisoners, and they could help one another, uh, although, you know, they were, uh, if you remember, there was a Chinese man that died because they told the prisoners they weren't allowed to uh, help feed or or Mm. feed him or give him any uh, 
water, so he ended up dying there. But, uh, you know, you at least had one another in those cells as bad as it was. These people, they isolate, they strip, you know, from their clothing. They, they, they you know, they have the hoods on so you mm-hmm. can't see. Uh, they do all of those things, uh, all those psychological things, in addition to the waterboarding and, and other horrific uh, uh, things that they did to them. So... Uh, it, what we did was worse. Uh, the uh, and and that is uh, documented uh, in you know California Senator uh, Dianne Feinstein, who who we don't laud, laud a whole lot on this show. She did at least face down the CIA a bit in order to compile that ten thousand page torture report. But neither she nor Obama, as you know, uh, seem to call for accountability for those. Who carried it out? I know you're a you're a fan, by the way, of, of Bernie Sanders during the 2016 primary, uh, presumably still today. Um, has he or anyone else at this point called for real accountability among the, the Democrats and so forth for these torturers like Gina Haspel? And and, and should they, even though we're now 10 years down the road after this? Uh, well, I know he had in the past during the time when, you know, in 2014 when this, when this uh, Senate torture report mm-hmm. uh, uh, was one of the ones that, along with, uh, with Feinstein, that want, wanted this done. I, have, I can't recall specifically, but uh, I do recall reading that there is a Republican senator that is, is deeply disturbed by this. I would be shocked if John McCain was not deeply disturbed by this since he underwent torture at the hands of the Vietnamese. So I would hope that, for once, uh, during this uh, this current uh, congressional term, there will be at least a few Republicans that would stand up and say no. You mentioned that a lot of this is alleged. Well, there's there's no doubt that she was, in fact, uh, 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 had command responsibility at this facility when the events occurred. So if you put her just in that alone, that would be a basis for it. The other thing is, when she directly took part in destroying the videotapes, that, in essence, was an obstruction of justice. So um, I just don't see how you can possibly even consider this woman for, for the appointment, let alone, you know, the, uh, there may be uh, statute of limitations problems trying her within federal courts here in the United States, but uh, it's, it, she still could potentially be tried. And if you recall, you were, you were mm-hmm. talking about, which is the, the standard under the law, that if we can't try them, we're supposed to turn them out over to an international tri- tribunal who mm-hmm. will try them. So I, I think a lot of these crimes are now uh, under U.S. law uh, because we have a separate U.S. Uh, anti-torture statute. Under U.S. law, I think our, uh, any prosecution would be barred by these statute limitations. But that doesn't mean you couldn't turn them over to the international community. Well, my understanding is, in fact, that the United Nations Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman and Degrading Treatment or Punishment, that convention uh, signed, I think, nearly unanimously, if not entirely unanimously, by the U.S. Senate uh, in 1980, uh, I think it was 84 or 85. Uh, th- there is no statute of limitations for that. No statute of limitations for torture. And that's one of the reasons why you don't see George. George W. Bush and uh, Dick Cheney making a lot of international trips these days because they could still be picked up for uh, for their involvement, their own command responsibility for torture. Uh, Ernie Canning, I uh, really appreciate you joining us uh, to discuss this today. 
um, and uh, you're uh, honoring your father, frankly, with these um, uh, w- with with your uh, coverage at bradblog.com. I'll point folks over there uh, to your article, Torture, a Crime Then and Now Revisited. Uh, I, I suspect he's very proud of you uh, for uh, for continuing this fight on his behalf and uh, your work and and his is greatly appreciated. Well, it, it, it's at least the one saving grace is that uh, he isn't here any longer to witness this. Yes, there's that. I, and with that upside, I guess, Ernie, uh, thanks again, my friend. I'll uh, point folks over there to bradblog.com and, of course, to uh, your Twitter account, which is can, C-A-N-N, the number four, I-N-G, can for ing Ernest Canning, thank you, sir. Thank you, Brad. Bye. Okay, a quick break, and we're back with uh, some breaking news, but don't worry. This time it looks like good news and a bit of related listener mail right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. To the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Boy, usually when we get breaking news at this time uh, of, of the day in the show, Desi Doyen, it's it's not good news. But I know. I know, but for change, we've got some pretty decent news just breaking from uh, AP here. A federal judge has dismissed a lawsuit challenging Massachusetts' ban on assault weapons ah. and large-capacity magazines. Uh, saying in his ruling that the weapons fall beyond the reach of the Second Amendment. U.S. District Judge uh, William Young said that assault weapons are military firearms and aren't protected by the constitutional right to bear arms. Regulation of the weapons is a matter of policy, not for the courts, he said. Writing in his uh, in his ruling, he said other states are equally free to leave them unregulated and available to their law abiding citizens. These policy matters are simply not of constitutional moment. Hmm. Americans are not afraid of bumptious, raucous. I'm not even sure what bumptious means. Do I think you know? it means similar to raucous, but I don't, I don't quote know. me on that. <laughs> Americans are not afraid of bumptious, raucous, and robust debate about these matters. We call it democracy. I like that turn of phrase. Yeah. Democratic State uh, Attorney General Maura Healey had said the ruling vindicates the right of the people of Massachusetts to protect themselves from these weapons of war. She says strong gun laws save lives. We will not be intimidated by the gun lobby in our efforts to end the sale of assault weapons and protect our communities and schools. Families across the country should take heart in this victory, she said. The Massachusetts assault weapons ban mirrors the federal ban that had been in place until it expired in 2004. It bans the sale of specific and name brand weapons and explicitly bans copies or duplicates of those weapons. The lawsuit was filed last year by 
uh, groups who said that the law infringed on their rights under the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Supreme Court, AP notes, has ruled that the Second Amendment allows Americans to have guns in their homes for self-defense and blocked local governments from banning handguns. However, the court last year also turned away an appeal from Maryland gun owners who challenged that state's ban on assault weapons. Yeah, if I recall correctly, in the 2008 Heller decision, Scalia explicitly said there is no unlimited right to bear arms. Uh, At least uh, that is what how that has been interpreted. I know that there's a lot of uh, folks, uh, NRA folks who are uh, would like to challenge that, would like to get it back to the Supreme Court, which, by the way, is why the Supreme Court and with it, majority of the Senate is so important. But I digress because I want to get to this uh, note from uh, Edward B. on uh, Facebook. Uh, who wrote, uh, we had discussed last week this um, this editorial from former Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens uh, lauding the, uh, the, the students from uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, who stood up after the massacre at their school uh, to call for things like bans on assault weapons. And John Paul Stevens, in his op-ed in the New York Times, said those kids are great, but they are not going nearly far enough. They ought to call for uh, repealing the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. So we talked about that, read from uh, uh, the uh, Justice Stevens editorial on that. And Edward B. responds via Facebook to say, probably more than most, I was interested in former Justice John Paul Stevens op-ed on Tuesday. Uh, He writes, on Monday, I had posted on Facebook for my friends a few remarks on things my wife and I had carried away from the March for Our Lives rally in St. Paul, Minnesota, um, just the day before. Uh, He includes an an excerpt from what he wrote. He says, we had originally thought about making a couple of signs, things like 86, the second, and the second, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. But we finally decided just to go along to get along. We knew that the vast majority of the people there, including the students, actually believe that their right to bear arms has some value and that they can attain lasting and effective laws to curtail the great American massacre while the NRA and its supporters use it to prop up their nefarious undermining of the country's safety. He says, I didn't say anything more since my Facebook friends are well aware of my anti-second stance and the justifications for it. I'd posted several essays over the years making use of the same arguments that Justice Stevens offers regarding the ultimate futility of gnawing around the edges of gun control. I began to take that stance back in the mid-1980s and maintained it even in the face of the Brady Bill, which I correctly predicted would eventually be ground down into irrelevancy. Mm, Well said. Over the years, both through letters and questions and forums, we've made our representatives in both houses of Congress aware of our position, he writes. The reply always comes down to, now, now, we're doing what we can. Anyway, as your show last night proved, says Edward Stevens, uh, for a while may have opened up debate on the Second Amendment and its repeal, its repeal entirely. 
He said, but I suspect things will quickly go back to where they were on gun control, just about nowhere, with the pro-gunners basically controlling the narrative. Old coots like Justice Stevens and I will most likely be dismissed as cranks by both sides in the issue. Maybe, though, just maybe enough people will stop trying to kill the dragon by chopping off its tail, which just grows back and start going straight for the heart. The heart in that case being an appeal of the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. That was just incredibly well written, too. I know it was, which is why I shared it. Thank you very much, Edward B. If you have uh, thoughts on this and the idea of saying, you know what, Uh, the hell with this gun safety reform. It's time to amend the Constitution itself and get rid of the Second Amendment itself. If you've got thoughts on that, you can drop them to me anytime. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. You can, of course, find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at simply the Brad Blog. Would love to hear from you. Uh, in the next couple of days, I hope to talk more about uh, what are seen as radical ideas. I guess it's a radical notion to think about repealing the Second Amendment entirely. I hope to talk more about some other radical ideas that uh, progressives may want to start talking about loudly. Uh, But we'll see. We'll get to that. (laughs) My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Ernest A. Canning, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com or any number of fine um, uh, podcast sites. Uh, Let's see. Oh, uh, you can grab it for free at bradblog.com. But we do thank those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue our fight for democracy and for debate. Yes, even on ideas like amending the U.S. Constitution. You don't hear that conversation uh, nearly enough, I'm sorry to say, in our corporate media uh, where such things are just we're not even supposed to talk about those things. And, of course, Democrats play along, unfortunately, far too often. Uh, Yes. In fact, I would say they are very good at running away from those very difficult debates. They are. Republicans aren't. They have no problem talking about changing the Constitution. So thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us at least continue the conversation. All right. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. (laughs) 